Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. New York native Veronica Vasica has unearthed countless analog synthwave gems and single-handedly revived a forgotten musical subgenre with Minimal Wave Records, the label she founded in 2005. And with Minimal Wave subsidiary City Tracks, a new generation of like-minded composers has found a home for their DIY releases. Vasika's influential sound was partly cultivated via online station East Village Radio, where she was the station's first program director. And a reputation cemented with the release of the compilation The Minimal Wave Tapes Volume 1 on Stone's Throw in 2010. Ever since, she spread the word of this incredible sound to audiences worldwide via releases on her vaunted labels and through her DJ sets. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, Vasika discusses the history of Minimal Wave, founding her label, baking tapes, mutant techno, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Complete the sentence for me. (laughs) Eighth grade would not be the same if... If Veronica wore white... How do you know that one? I'm pulling a Nardwar on you. We're in Canada. Um, why would eighth grade not be the same if Veronica wore white? Um, well, that was actually from my yearbook, as you probably imagined. Um, that was when I started getting into really weird underground electronic music. It was around eighth grade. And how old would you have been in eighth grade? 14. Yeah. And where was 14-year-old Veronica listening to this stuff? Um, I started listening to a lot of weird stuff on the radio. And I made mixtapes when I was around 11, started making mixtapes and giving them to friends and doing the artwork for the tapes, making collages. Um, And then by the time I was 14, 15, I was going to uh, clubs in in New York City, just sneaking out of the house and, yeah, going wild at the clubs. Uh, So where would a 14-year-old Veronica go in New York City? It was mostly downtown, right? There were pretty important clubs for this kind of weird music downtown. Yeah, it was um, the Pyramid Club, which actually still exists on Avenue A in the East Village. And then um, the Limelight, and actually at the limelight, I saw a lot of uh, industrial bands from Europe that came in and played shows. I mean, I didn't even know who I was seeing, like Front 242, um, Reb. And um, yeah, and then there were various like warehouse parties that were, that just had addresses but didn't have names. Uh, yeah. What was the limelight, limelight like? you describe it when you when you walked in how would you describe like the like the the trip through the limelight well the limelight was an old church that was converted into a club and um so when you walked in I mean it was like a gothic cathedral that you were walking into and they had a card room on the second floor which was actually um made out of like life-size playing cards and you could walk through it and um It was really bizarre. And each room had a different theme. 
Um, and then the room that I was always in was called the chapel. And that was where um, Dave Kendall from the UK, who was uh, emceeing 120 Minutes, mm-hmm. MTV's 120 Minutes. So I watched 120 Minutes and see Dave Kendall playing all this alternative and indie rock and new wave music. And um, and then I would see him DJ on Tuesday nights you know, in the flesh. I mean, I didn't think he was... He wasn't really an idol, but I just thought it was like amazing to be able to go hear him play. So you records. would so you would watch this stuff on MTV and then also be able to go to the club when it was happening. Um, how with did, a fake ID? With a fake ID, obviously. With a fake ID. <laughs> We're doing things properly around here. Um, how? What was it like to watch something subcultural on TV on MTV and then be able to just go to the club that it was happening in? Was that quite strange? Well, I didn't have a reference point to what wasn't strange or, you know, the fact that other people couldn't really do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, it was just, it was like my own little world of music that um, was an escape from, you know, going to school. I mean, I did go to school, but I kind of didn't enjoy hanging out with people at school. So I met other people outside of that. Also in the limelight that was... Um, I'm wondering about the influence that somewhere like the limelight might have had on you because it was very like a multimedia club, wasn't it? They had like a room dedicated to the guy who designed all the stuff for Alien, all the influential stuff like that H.R. Geiger. Can you explain like what that looked like? Um, I mean, it looked, it really looked like a movie set. I mean, each room had, um, was kind of cavernous and there were all these little tiny rooms, um, which, you know, were central to the architecture of the fact that it was, uh, that had been a church. So it was, yeah, it was ultimately really fascinating. Um, and then, of course, they would have smoke machines and all kinds of bizarre lighting and um, strobes and, you know, different kinds of music in each room. So I think it's um, very easy for us to talk about m- music sounding weird. Uh, but weird is not necessarily the preserve of just the underground of the time. Like things sift back and forth. And I think that's a particularly fertile sound to go between like underground music and pop music. So were you listening to stuff like that when you were growing up as well, as, as well as going to like the limelight? Yeah, I mean, I would say that stuff was came a little bit later, actually, because I mean, I grew up in New York and I was listening to... Um, kind of slightly later stuff from the new wave sound and new wave scene. Um, But I'm thinking that actually Ultravox had influenced a lot of the bands on Minimal Wave on my label. And um, you can hear that direct link. Let's let's get into your long back catalogue and how it started to happen. Um, the, the minimal wave aesthetic is really interesting uh, because it's a combination of what you've called uh, the cold wave and the minimal synth sounds. Can you explain what those are and where they come from? Um, yeah, the minimal synth sound is, uh, it was basically um, artists that were making music at home with uh, drum machines and synthesizers and just recording everything on four track recorders and um, in a very DIY fashion where 
it, lots of times it was just one artist, um, you know, in his lonely home studio bedroom recording songs. And Cold Wave was um, more guitar oriented. It was uh, what was happening in France as a, uh, I guess, as a response to post punk and uh, music that was happening in Belgium and the UK. So when I started the label in 2005, it was, uh, it was just about the passion that I had for both of those types of music and how I saw a lot of um, overlap between those two genres, which were uh, very like particular genres. And um, I guess because there were a lot of compilations that came out that had um, cold wave bands as well as mineral synth bands, um, there wasn't a strict delineation between the two. So there's also um, a guy in Canada who, his name was Alex Douglas, and he started a contact list of electronic music. And basically it was a zine that had um, addresses and contact information for artists from all over the world. So... Through that, artists could um, collaborate and they wrote to each other and they sent tapes through the mail. And that was ultimately really fascinating to me when I discovered a lot of this music on cassette that, um, that were results of collaborations from, say, an artist in New York and an artist in Belgium. Brief introduction into your quite slavish process and how you've built this label up, uh, you know, finding inventories of people's contact details through mailing lists and cassette tape, linear notes and all this kind of thing. Um, can you talk about why you would do that? I know that sounds like such a simple question, but if you can go like um, hear the kind of like the front 242 sounds in a big club in New York when you're younger and you can buy front 242 tracks on, on wax tracks and other big labels, like why go in that archival search to find something so strange. Like some of the releases I know have been out on one 200 cassette tape run in 1982 and you found it, found them, <laughs> released the record, got their permission, like, and you've done it close to a hundred times for yeah. just, and, and, yeah. and not including the compilations. So why would you do that? Well, I mean, it's, it's interest really in the music and obviously feeling an affinity like to those artists and feeling some kind of uh, similarity. I, I mean, I was recording music myself from when I was 14, 15 on by myself, just really as a diary and not for public consumption, just to make music. And um, I just felt identified with that. And kind of this private world of music. Here she is, you know, telling him, here's a track I made for you and uh, curious to hear what you think. And, you know, and they're doing this literally transatlantic uh, collaboration, which I just found really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I had in a way been keeping my own diary of recording my own music onto four track recorders um, I mean, I was, when I was about 17, 16, I discovered Throbbing Gristle and I was very influenced by them. 
um, they were doing performance art. I mean, they it was they blurred the lines between what was uh, music and what was performance, and um, kind of ca causing people to lose their expectations, not knowing, you know, going to a show and not knowing what kind of performance was going to ensue. That was really interesting to me. So, I think minimal wave was the culmination of um, of that of those influences. Um, you, I think the aesthetic, as you say, of, of, of Throbbing Gristle and all these other bands is really interesting because you are very, very involved in the design of everything and you went to the Rhode Island School of Design, right? Mm -hmm. To study photography? Yeah. Uh, what were like the dominant design trends of the day? Like what was the aesthetic of that time like for you? You mean when I was studying or... Like what did what was like the design of everything around you like? Like what was what was advertising like? What was fashion like? And what were you doing at the um, photography that was like something completely well, of your own? It was. I mean, it was it was the nineties, and the Face magazine from the UK was um, a big inspiration. I loved the design of that magazine. But when I was in school, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't doing any graphic design. I was just doing a lot of black and white photography and some color as well. Um, I don't think it really had to do with what was happening at school, my interest. I think it had to do with looking at um, old records and just collecting stuff from the early 80s. And like that vinyl magazine, there was a magazine out of the Netherlands, um, that was designed by Max Kisman and he designed all the typography and the fonts for his mag his music magazine. And I just, to me, that was like very inspiring. He did every aspect of the magazine aside from being a music fanatic. So actually this, um, the font that's used here in the hidden tapes, that is from vinyl magazine. And I'm trying to find the other one. The first time that I used that font was over here for the Lost Tapes. Drawing from zines and ideas of design and photography, that fell into how you managed, how you run the label because you you would design the records as you were listening to the music, right? Yeah, could, exactly. Can you talk about your process a little bit? Because that whole DIY way of doing things is something that people find very familiar and would like to get involved in and they think about a lot. Well, maybe we can talk about The Lost Tapes because this is the first compilation that I put out, The Lost Tapes. And um, this was mostly European synth music from the early 80s that was like very limited, released in very limited batches. Um, and the photograph is actually a portrait that I took of my best friend when I was uh, 16. And I had painted my room black so that background was my black room and then it was like natural sunlight coming into the room. So you painted your whole bedroom black just to take that photo? Well no not just to take the photo it was just like around that time like when I look at this I remember painting my room black at that time. That's exceptionally so. goth of you well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually looking for the follow-up there is another compilation called the the found tapes which was the follow-up to that so this is a compilation of uh, North American synth and wave stuff. I thought 
the European side could be the feminine side, which was already done, and then this is the masculine side, the North American side. So, why the feminine and the masculine? I don't know. I mean, I think in my mind, I just if I were to if I were to reference like the European synth scene or whatever was coming out. I feel it's more feminine than what was coming out of the US. The romance of and the sincerity of finding a lost recording from somebody, you know, wrote basically a love letter or a note or um, wrote a piece of music as to how they felt, like posted to someone and you found it. Um, could we possibly go a little bit back to how you actually do this as like a daily like operation like where do you do it how do you do it um where do you find this music if it's so lost and hidden like where do you go and find it you know well I mean it starts with collecting cassettes which I'd been doing for a long time um and just collecting obscure records going to record fairs um zines like vinyl the one that you see up there there were a lot of articles about obscure bands in that magazine um and then looking up addresses that were say on the back of an album and just writing letters and trying to find the people behind those limited edition releases so yeah that's that's where it starts and it is, is it as much of the story as the music as the people that you find? Because I know that the first record you ever put out was by a nuclear scientist. Is that yeah, right? he's a nuclear weapons expert, Andy Oppenheimer. And he is, uh, he lives in the UK in Brighton. Um, so how did you get in touch with a nuclear, a, nu a nuclear weapons expert? I wrote to his, he was working for a consulting firm. And I wrote to them and, and then at first he was, how did you find me and how do you know about my music? And he was like, he was kind of afraid about, I mean, cause he's trying to live a different life now and yeah. he was really freaked out. But then, um, over time I had a conversation, you know, I was emailing and uh, calling him and we were talking on the phone and his musical partner who ended up becoming a doctor just a, a GP he uh in the UK as well um he was really interested in having all the music out there in having those archives um so he's the one that ended up uh, Martin Lloyd ended up going into the archives and um, transferring everything digitally he the process with analog tape is that the tapes needed to be baked, baked in a low temperature oven. How, how do you bake a tape? Like um, if I wanted to bake a tape, could I bake a tape? Well, <laughs> you need to know how to do it so that your tape doesn't fall apart. But what happens is the magnetic particles over time in the tape um, can just like completely decompose. And if you're transferring the tape and it hasn't been baked, then through the process of transferring, it could just fall apart. So baking the tape makes it resilient for that transfer. So you have about like three to five days to transfer that tape digitally before it like... Before it's actually it lost. Well, it might not sound good anymore. It might sound warped. It might... 
it actually ends up sounding better in a lot of cases than the original recording which is really interesting. Is that a process that you employ for a lot of the records that we've been hearing, that they've been found on these tapes and you're at home baking them one yeah, after I'm the not, other? I'm not doing the baking, but okay. I'm not the specialist in baking. You're not the, but you're not the baking specialist. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I do bake cakes, but not tapes. So, yeah. But in this case, um, Martin did the baking and he's, I mean, he's a technical genius. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. He passed away, but... So this is the first record I released, and this was after, this was after the whole, um, you know, after he transferred the tapes initially before they were baked, and there was a warbling sound, and the um, they weren't releasable. They just they didn't sound good. So we talked about it, and we researched, and we found out that if you bake tapes, then um, there's a likelihood that they're going to sound better, and you can transfer. These are I'm talking about like 30 year old tapes. So, 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 this is the product of the baked tape. Yeah. So okay. this was um, the the track that they were known for, called the Devil's Dancers. That was the first record you ever put out in Minimal Wave. Yeah. This was uh, yeah. this came out in two thousand five. Mm-hmm. But I just want to tell you about the meeting about how they they met of Andy Oppenheimer. Um, so these are quotes that we put in the liner notes of the reedition. This is a most recent re-edition of their, uh, all their material that came out last year. And so Andy Oppenheimer, I was at a publishing party at the 1979 World Science Fiction Convention in Brighton. This is how they met. I'd been trying to engage a rather tipsy pre-famed Douglas Adams, author of HHG, in conversation as he happened to be sitting on the same sofa when I saw Andy across the room dressed exactly as Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. I had to speak to him. So that's that's the context of their meeting. It's so there's just, a guy dressed like David, David Bowie at a sci-fi convention. That's Andy, yeah. That's the guy who... Yeah, the, the singer. That's the nuclear weapons specialist. And... Um, and then on the music, because basically for this for this release, I had asked him to answer these few questions, um, these basic, uh, f- you know, interesting facts, whatever. On the music, the music was written at my home studio, Feedback Studio in London, and cassettes were sold at pub gigs. So they played at pubs, um, science fiction conventions, and the Bowie amateur home taping. Oh, wait. Sorry. It jumped the line. And the Bowie amateur home taping boom? Wait, no, no, no. It sounds interesting. And the Bowie convention. Bowie, okay, there was a Bowie convention where we played for our largest audience, 2000. In all, around 200 copies were made. This was at the height of the amateur home taping boom when Melody Maker Sounds and NME would offer free advertising and reviews in their home taping columns and wanted to appeal... Okay, that's it. And the, basically, they spent between a pound and three pounds on uh, on advertising and right. NME and Melody Maker. So that um, so that was like the economy of how the music would get around in these small circles, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. In these zines and magazines, um, but like many other bands on Minimal Wave, the way that uh, Martin describes success is pretty much, I think. Um, the outlook of most of these bands, 
We've never set out, we were never set out to be commercial in any sense. We have always wanted to appeal to those who share the same taste in music and culture, while friends encouraged us to release Devil's Dancers and Cold War on singles. This never happened as we stopped working together. Da, 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 da. I decided to limit my involvement in the music business. Um, so, yeah, no, it wasn't about anything other than a hobby. You know, getting together, playing music, recording, and doing these limited edition tapes. Um, so yeah. Did um on that note then, if you find these people who are nuclear scientists and doctors, and they sometimes haven't talked to each other for years, haven't made music for years, and you turn up out of nowhere and go, "I want to release your music," are you? Was there ever a sense you were like intruding on their lives? like wanting to do this? Did you have people that yeah. were very resistant? Because I think possibly the idea like, oh, you found my music after so many years. I'm so grateful someone bothered to care. But there must be people out there who were like, why, just just please leave me alone. Oh like, yeah, there are plenty of people that don't want their ta their music to be reissued. But a lot of times I don't, I mean, I don't go further and bother those people. Don't bake my tape. It actually doesn't, it doesn't work. If the initial response is like, I'm not interested, then it... Because I did, of course, try, like, certain artists that I really wanted to release. Um, and it, it doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't work. So... But I think maybe we can talk about um, Inédor Namvel from France, because... He was pretty keen. He was pretty keen to get his music out there, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering, just before that, um, I have kind of a question about your kind of like responsibility in that regard, running a label. I know it's a, a personal endeavour, but um, when this music was, you know, recorded and heard in a certain form early on, and now you've gone through the process of baking a tape, uh, redoing the artwork yourself, uh, representing it in this context, along with eventually a large back catalogue of other records quite like it. Um, do you ever think about how... Uh, you may or may not be presenting it in the way that it was intended and how much of it is about an aesthetic that you particularly enjoy and you want to find music that fits your personal tastes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, I mean, How, but how I in think... control are you of other people's music when you take it away and, and do other things with it? I mean, I often do several different designs and ask them which design they prefer. Um, but I also think they were never really given the chance at the time to have their an aesthetic out there per se, aside from like when they played live. Um, yeah, so I think it's just about expanding upon what they've already created. Yeah. And the, the popularity of this label, the sounds that have come from it, it's actually, you know, people use a minimal way very interestingly as almost like a almost like a genre term, which I find fascinating because I don't really know any other labels where people do that right now, where they say, oh, it's like minimal wave, but it might be a record that's not on your label, but they, they use the words minimal wave to describe it. And it's actually had um, an impact in techno in recent years, uh, which maybe people in the room who like techno might have heard fragments of, but all the different strands of this is actually fed back into current techno culture, right? Have you seen that yourself? Yeah, well, I think um, I do a sub-label called City Tracks and City Tracks is pretty much like new artists who have been influenced by Minimal Wave and they're doing, they're making dance music. They're making like mutant techno and... A mutant um, techno. Yeah, mutant techno. <laughs> yeah. 
because it's not techno in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think having these influences, um, it just kind of shifts. If you just listen to minimal wave for, you know, an entire year and then you make a techno record, it's it's not going to sound like traditional techno. It's not going to sound like Jeff Mills. (laughs) We can start with Inandernam Vale. And then we can go to um, NI, which is a City Tracks release that is a friend of mine who actually, um, he's like a perfect example of, he he was, he didn't know what, what he wanted to make. We knew, I knew I wanted to release something of his. Um, and then he was asking me about that weird Belgian shit. Like he was, What's the know, weird Belgian shit? Like, um you know, like early Front 242 and stuff like that. Um, but the Liaison Dangereuse, yeah. uh, Los Ninos del Parque, you know, the, do you know that track? Yes, um, they actually just reissued that. This looks so complicated. <laughs> Here you go. Um, but he was just referring to like music that I was listening to. Mm. And so I was, I ended up sending him a bunch of stuff and then three months later, he recorded this like incredible track that we ended up putting out. And who's in Aeternum Vale? Am I saying that right? Yeah. I've had conversations um, about how to say that right. In Aeternum Vale. Okay. Well, I mean, I say in Aeternum Vale, but it's, it's Latin and it should be in Aeternum Vale. And what does it but mean in Latin? Do you know? Until the end or something like this. Until the end. Um yeah, no, it's really... So he's from Lyon, and he's an artist who was making a lot of synth punk in the early 80s. Um, really frenetic sounding stuff, um, discordant, noisy. And then over time, he started making other stuff. In 1987, he made this track that's um, it's just like a pure techno track, and he didn't have a context for it. It's he hadn't been listening to techno, so I think that's like extremely fascinating. It's that. so interesting when people make techno, but they don't really listen to it, and it ends yeah. up sounding like techno. Yeah, yeah. So throughout the label, you've transitioned through um, 80s synth pop. Uh, you've done more Coldway stuff. Pof- the post-punk, I can barely speak, I'm overwhelmed by the techno. Contemporary ideas of what is musically and artistically of value and interesting are not always what we look back on and think are of artistic value and are interesting. And I think if you were watching Eurovision at the time, you'd be like, what is this? Like, this is this is rubbish. But you released it on a label in the context of like post-punk and synth-pop and techno and industrial music. And... I love I love the idea that you, we can look back on footage and really romanticize what's going on at certain points in history, particularly with music. We use nostalgia as an aesthetic, but actually you look back and a lot of music that was going on at that time was kind of mad and 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 that was on Eurovision. Um yes. so can you tell me about the journey of that going from Eurovision to to Minimal Wave? Yes, so this band, they're a band from Belgium. Um, and it was Walter Verdun and these two women. He, I mean, I first heard this track called Les Jumeaux in, um, off of a cassette compilation that's, that a guy, a collector in Germany had made. So they had a few seven inches in, in the early eighties 
And amongst minimal synth collectors, it was really cool to play one of these tracks um, way too slow. We had an, uh, a lecture with Tim Hecker the other day, which was fascinating. And he had a line uh, where he said that there's this malaise of the archivist. And you're an archivist. Originally, the label was started as an online online archive where we were just going to upload like pictures and videos and clips and artwork and stuff. But you decided to turn it into a label. But you very much ran the label with the mindset of an archivist. Mm-hmm. Do you ever um, get overwhelmed by how much there is yet still to to hear and to learn and do you ever get possibly overwhelmed by the idea that you'll never the knowledge that you'll never hear everything no no I mean I don't feel I mean I feel like there is this untapped world mm-hmm. of very similar music other bands that were doing the same thing but or I mean not the same thing because I don't think any of these bands are doing the same thing exactly but um, I don't yeah, no, I don't really feel that because I feel in order to move forward, it's important to just do that, to move forward. And like, for example, like what I was talking about, about um, city tracks and artists that are making music today that are influenced maybe by the sounds, these old sounds. But um, maybe if you'd asked me that like six years ago, I would have said answer differently. So... Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And do you think um, nostalgia plays a role in what you do? Are you kind of looking for something that you didn't possibly grow up with and were from different countries and that were lost and hidden and underappreciated and this is a kind of a romantic gesture to run a label like this? Yeah, I think nostalgia definitely plays a key role. Um, I mean, I think a lot of these mixtapes that I was making when I was like 11, I was 11 years old and making mixtapes. I mean, I didn't even know what I was recording off the radio. And, but that was a really important time because it was like my escape from everything else that was going on around me. And um, maybe it's nostalgia for that time, mm-hmm. you know, where I didn't have adult responsibilities and, just as a teenager, it's like everything's your own world, mm. everything you get into. And I was also, when I was 16, I was working at a record store and they had um, like bargain bins and stuff like this and stuff they couldn't sell. And so I discovered a lot of stuff through there. Mm. Yeah. Do you think nostalgia is healthy to keep moving forward? Do you think it's a healthy thing to have um, as part of your I mean, work? not in excess but I think to the degree that I have it I don't think it's a problem (laughs) it's not a problem so far you got all this to show for it yeah hey this is Jordan Rothline again thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. 
Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.